0: Now, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone, it is, of course, the one and only Alan Niven, a co-host. But this time, Alan, you are actually going to be a co-host, co-host, and you're going to join me
1: the entire episode. Isn't that exciting? Well, your guest is exciting. Um, (sighs) Your guest was a member of a band that was the only time in my life that I went to see... um, a band basically auditioned at the Whiskey. And uh, it's the only time I've ever seen a slam dunk, can't-miss, nothing-but-net, hole-in-one, can't-fail band. And they were awesome. Well, you know what? I, I, hold on. Let me
0: hold off on the guest for a second. Let's talk about this story, and then we'll we'll get Ron's reaction. Well, I just said Ron. We'll get Ron Young from Little Caesar's reaction to this. So, Ron, I don't know if you know. Bonjour, Ron, by the way. Bienvenue. Bonjour. Uh, I don't know if Alan Niven has ever told you this story about the night he went to see you at the whiskey, but to me, it's one of the greatest rock stories. Uh, Alan, I- explain in th- the story in its in its grandeur because it's 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 a funny story, but it might have made people turn some heads well, back then.
1: Well, I, I I still have to this day. Um, someone I can call a very good friend, and his name is Tom Zootout. And he was employed at the time doing A&R and Geffen. And uh, my then wife was his assistant. And um, he called me up and he said, there's going to be a show for uh, various A&R people at the Whiskey for this band called Little Caesar. You want to go with me? And I said, yeah, I've been hearing about this band. I really want to go see him. So Tom and I went and grabbed a, a hot dog or something and uh, made our way down to the whiskey. We went into the whiskey and it was packed with a people. Everybody was there to check out this new band that everybody was talking about. And before they, they started playing, Tom looked at me and he said, he looked around the room and he said, you want to fuck with them? And I said, sure. What do you got in mind? Tom said, let you and I obviously leave the room after three numbers, which is what we did. The band played three numbers. We're standing there and going, oh, my God, they're fabulous. And then we made a big to-do of getting up and walking out. And as we were walking out, we walked out slowly enough to be able to, just out of the corner of our eye, see all the heads swivel. And the idea was... We knew we'd walk out of the room, and all those people would be going, Zoot out and never just left. Are they any good? What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? And, of course, the amusing aspect of that is, is the band ended up signing to Geffen, of course. Um, but it was just a little bit of playfulness for right. but other people other people who were there. And
0: But that was part of your ploy to try to, to, to sign them to your thing, because you were like, hey we'll get people to think that that they're not worth signing, so they'll have to come to us, right? I mean, that's sort of what it
1: was. Well, it definitely crossed both our minds. We knew exactly what we were doing by walking out at that moment. And, um, you know, unfortunately, the likes of John Cullodna and Jimmy Irvine and Bob Rock all got into the mix, and I sat back and went, well, I'm not going to go up against that. Um, you know, they're, they're more than covered for producer, A&R man, and the manager. So at that point, I went, oh, well, never mind. Oh, what a shame. What a Great shame. band. I'm going to look forward to seeing them out on the road. So, so Ron,
0: tell me about the the night that Alan Niven and Tom Zutat ruined your career. Go ahead.
1: Go ahead.
2: <laughs> oh, actually, he's probably doing, doing us a favor, actually, would have been a, more, a better term, probably. Um, you know, it's so funny because the the band's perspective at this time You know, we were a real working class kind of band. We'd all had enough miles under our wheels that we knew the dog and pony show. And the second show we ever did, uh, Jimmy Iovine's assistant was there at this club out on the west side of of LA. And the next day I get this phone call at my messenger company where I was a dispatcher and it's Jimmy Iovine on the phone saying, I want to sign you guys. I want to work with you guys. We're going to make you huge. And... So I started working with Jimmy, you know, spent about three hours on the phone without a lawyer negotiating our management contract. Cause I told him you have a reputation for destroying bands. You come in and you'll like me and you'll want to get rid of the guitar player. And I said, there's none of that. We're a band. We'll stand and fall as a band. And there might be some players that might be weak in the studio. We'll talk about that. We'll figure all that out. But here you know, we got through the bullet points of it and we started working together. And, Immediately, we started to you know do all these shows, and we had a buzz uh, from a real buzz from of the fans. You know, people, music lovers, and because we weren't a more pop-oriented hair metal band, we were just more of a straight-ahead blues-based band. We stood out amongst amongst the competition, so we started to build up a good following. And Jimmy immediately is like, "No, I'm not going to do any more shows. We're gonna we're gonna cultivate you for the whole." And so the band's attitude to the whole thing was, listen, we're, we're nothing until we sell a record. Selling records is what denotes a successful band. It's not the manager, it's not the A&R guy, it's not the producer. And that kind of plagued us through the whole thing where the band was the reasonable ones and we smelt the trouble of putting all of these monster egos together on one project. And lo and behold, <laughs> it, 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 it imploded and bit us in the ass um, to the detriment of our business because we were used in pawns of petty, you know, of petty personal fights completely outside the realm of the band. Distribution and publishing deals and Jimmy starting a label and all of this stuff. And we were the little pawn in the middle that, that got caught up in it all. Um, and Alan was satelliting this whole thing, watching what was happening at Geffen when, when, when David sold the label and you know, and unfortunately, Jimmy had too many dogs in the fight to just be looking out for the artists, quote unquote, because he was starting up Interscope and so on. So, you know, it's the classic spinal tap, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. The band smelt it, you know, coming a mile away. And we were just waiting for that guillotine to fall because we knew it, eventually it would. We waited a year and a half to work with Bob Rock because John Kalodner wanted us to work with Bob Rock. We were like, well, let's just find another producer. Well, no, I had a fight with him, you know, over over this other project I was doing, Blue Murder, and but I'll, I'll get him back in the fold. Well, Bob had booked two other records. So here's, here's this band that's just sitting around waiting for a producer to free up when there's a whole other bunch of producers. And, you know, lo and behold, like we went up there going to try to make a real stripped down organics, you know almost 70s kind of original classic hard rock record and it started out that way and while we were making that record Dr. Feelgood went to number one and that day forward we went from little from Bob Rock making a Little Caesar record to Little Caesar making a Bob Rock record and that's another one we smelt coming you know but these are all our sort of inside things that I'm sure Alan's got a million of those kind of stories. You know, he was there protecting GNR from all that stuff.
1: Um, I, but I, I can is- just hear, Ron, I can just hear it. I could just hear John Kalodna coming into the studio and looking at Bob Rock when he's played, played some uh, tape back for him and going, ah, it sounds too much like a street band to me. We need right. to sugar it up.
2: That's exactly what he said. And in comes the keyboards and the multi-track machines and the background singers. And you know, John got back on his plane after sanitizing his hands. He was very forward-thinking back then. And
1: uh, without 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 a doubt, to me, Little Caesar were the most dynamic, promising, powerful, vital entertaining street band I'd seen in a long time come out of L.A. And I got to say, you know, Claudner, Irvine, Bob Rock, they've all had tremendous success in their lives. But boy, did they fuck you up.
2: Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, no. I, listen, I had a fly back to L.A. to sit down with Jimmy and say, listen, you need to go to bat for us on this. And this is right when he was in you know, he was just putting his whole Interscope plan together and David wanted to be part of it and all this stuff. And Jimmy told him to basically go screw himself. And so Jimmy really couldn't, you know, put his full weight behind what was happening in the studio up there. He was preoccupied. And I was just like, man, this is turning into everything we said we didn't want, you know, the kind of record we didn't want to make. We wanted to make like a Leonard Skinner kind of record. You know, we wanted to get guys like that. you know, when we threw names and things, it was like Tom Dowd and all these old, and, you know, Kaladnick was just, no, no, we gotta go with a slick guy who sells records. We gotta get that sound for the radio. You know, <laughs> it's like,
1: uh, you know what, oh, you should? You know what you should have done? You should have pulled your trousers down, stood on the stool, and peed all over the deck. Yeah, desk.
2: Like, like Inga Laurie then they'd have did. Got yes. it. <laughs> yeah, like yeah.
1: Inga Laurie did. Had you done that, yeah. they might have got the message.
2: Yeah, I know. But, you know, again, it's, it's like, and, and you know this also well, you know, so you, we were in the bad situation where everybody was talking about us, you know, the size of this time we signed this deal. Which wound up being like three-inch thick contract, and the attorneys made all their money on the negotiations, yeah, you know, all that shit. Where, and it's like we we had gotten the largest record deal for a new band, like that was like the record deal, you know, the most money, the most, all this kind of crap. Which of course meant that they could drop you anytime, you know. That's a relative term in in recording contracts. Um, it doesn't mean anything, and there was so much expectation on the band where everything was under a microscope, any sort of moves are being, you know, analyzed and all this kind of stuff, MTV, just bring us the video, we'll play it and all this stuff. You know, when you're competing, you know, expectations lead to disappointment. That's just the rule of life. And with all this other stuff, it's, you know, to be in a position like, like Guns N' Roses where, you know, they're not really seeing it. You got to go prove it to them, you know? So it's not like they see it and they're waiting for you to just deliver on their expectations. And that's not under the band's control, you know? It's like we, we tried to make a record that, we're, you know, I have this theory. I call it my Benjamin Franklin theory. And that's Benjamin Franklin didn't invent electricity. He discovered electricity. And I used to tell this to John Kalodner when he would get really angry at me and stop talking to me for a while, because I said, you didn't invent this band. You discovered the band. Why don't you let the band tell you its vision? Because everything we've done up to this point got your attention above every other band. So why don't we have some weight in this conversation and go with our judgment and give us the tools to bring that to fruition, to a record that that accurately represents the band. And we will happily stand on that with integrity and roll the dice because we thought that music was going to change. We thought it either had to go back or go forward. It couldn't just keep being the overproduced, fluffy rock track, token rock track, and then token ballad. Loving token in track, token ballad. Right. You know, over and over and over again. And sure enough, you know, the whole grunge thing exploded, which proved my theory that people wanted an alternative. Then all of a sudden, everything from Metallica to Blues Traveler to Red Hot Chili Peppers fell into the alternative genre, you know? And it was like, the the kids, everyone's getting tired of this cranked out production value with, like classic story. I sat down, I was over at Geffen one day, I uh, get grabbed by Culloden, you gotta come in, we're having a listening party, you know? It was the Blue Murder record, so there's, you know, Al Corey, and there's all these big execs from Geffen sitting there, and John puts on this, the, the first single from the Blue Murder record, and they're all bopping their head out of time, and looking at each other with these, you know, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm listening, and I'm going, there's no hook, There's there's nothing in this song that makes it a hit. It's a credible rock track and everything. Good band, blah blah blah. And unfortunately, I should have shut my mouth. And when it got done, and I got done circle jerking each other, I said, "There's no hook." And it went silent. <laughs> you know. And uh, and John, what do you mean? Do you, do you hear those sounds? Do you hear? I'm like, you think kids buy a snare drum sound? That's not what they're buying, man. It's not a matter of how it sonically sounds. It's does the music. You guys are forgetting. You keep looking for music that impresses people. Music is supposed to move you, not impress you. And there's nothing in this track that's really moving you. Yeah, put on your headphones, smoke a joint. That's all great, but that's not what a great record's made of. So good luck to it. It, It'll do well, but it's not going to be what you guys seem to be bopping your heads to. That's just my opinion. And then, of course, I was never invited back to John Coladna's Magic Castle there, but You know, it's just kind of what happens.
0: You know, it it is kind of what happens. Uh, All right, so let me let me just ask you then quickly about the first Little Caesar. Then, well, not the EP, the first full length. It's thirty years old this month, month of May. Came out May fifteenth, nineteen ninety. Are you satisfied with that album, or did they really polish it up too much? No,
2: I was never satisfied with that record. Okay, never. I, I thought it landed in between the two. You know, when you, Listen, when you try if, to do if I that.
1: Inter- if I can interject, probably I could make a, I could make a, a very profound, legitimate case of, for this in a, in a court of law, but probably one of the very best rock and roll albums of the last 10 years was called American Dream. And if American dream had been made back then, oh my God, I mean, tracks like dirty water. I mean, there's another funny story. Ron sent me some tracks to listen to with the album. And of course me being incompetent on a, on a computer, I listened to the last track first and got totally fucking blown away. I went, this is awesome. And immediately get in touch with Ron and say, this is brilliant. He goes, Hey, dummy. It's the last track on the record. And I'm going, well, my God, if that's the last track on the record, show me the rest of it. And American Dream was a great record. It felt great. It had great tones. It was about something. It had soul, intelligence and a visceral quality. All the things that Bob Rock missed. Yeah. So, Thank you.
0: Thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah, that and and the last record on Golden Robot also eight was great. In fact, every I've loved everything, but uh, brutally honest and all that. But but let me just quickly get back to that first one. So so you were disappointed because it just it it, it because I love that record and I have to tell you, as a fan back then, I had gone through the Motley Crue phase, I had gone through the Bon Jovi phase, the Def Leppard phase, the Aerosmith phase. You know, I bought all the albums, everything, everything, everything. And it got to a point where I just couldn't afford to go explore new bands because you know, the albums started going from seven dollars for the cassette to eighteen dollars for the CD and then twenty four dollars for you know in Canada at least. But Little Caesar is one that I tried out and and spent the money, and I played it forever in the car. Just I would drive to anywhere just to hear it, just to have an excuse and yet as as the artist, you think that it needed to be a little dirtier, a little little grittier well, perhaps
2: I, I just i no, i just I just thought it should have been more honest, you know, I think that Bob polished off just enough of the edges so that the powers that be and the people that wanted to bring it to radio and have something that was more familiar to the ear would they'd be happy with that, and I just felt that a lot of the band's personality was taken out of the record and i didn't really feel that that the band was a a singles band we were we were a lifestyle band we were a band that you bought into the whole thing and all the stories and the attitude behind it and the the, the intelligence of the lyrics and the approach to explaining day-to-day life from a more common man experience you put all that together and it was a band that could make be a catalog band, not just a one-off kind of thing. And so when we saw all the expectations to go out of the park and I'm like, we make really good ballads. If we get to the ballad tracks, I think we'll stand out. But if we don't set us up with a really strong leadoff single of that's a rock track that establishes the band's credibility as a rock band. When you make a bunch of tattooed axe murdering bikers start, you know, doing love songs it's going to make everybody scratch their head and i don't think that's going to work well for us so we really got to set this up and we didn't even want to do chain of fools for the record that was the first song we ever learned to just get together and jam on something was my concept of doing a a heavy metal hard rock soul band um because i didn't sing like a girl i didn't look like a girl we're going to get away from all of that so it just became like a signature track and John wanted to make it a lead off single and his attitude was well, Van Halen hit with, with their covers. And I'm like, what does what, what one thing have to do with the other? It's okay, but it's not a monster hook. The song is a song. Aretha's got a hundred times better songs from a qualities of, of writing standpoint, but she could sing the phone book and it's going to be a hit. I don't necessarily think, who, who knows, you're old. People, kids don't know Aretha Franklin. That's our that's our influences, and that comes out in all our music. So these kind of discussions, and I just felt that when we went in and did the record that if you're gonna try to shave off the things that make the band the band, that you're just, you know, that's like getting, you know, penis reduction surgery when you're a porn star. It's like, what's the point? You know? It's like, that's, put out what the band is. It'll either sink or it'll swim. And, but if you really let the honesty and the openness come across, hear the personality of the holes in the music, and which is soul blues-based music, those holes, those spaces, the interplay, the, the swing between all of this, this is what makes for a great soul record. They don't make slickly produced, you know, so the reason for that was for personality, so you could hear that, and oh, Bob just had so much of
1: that off. The other shame of that, Ron, is that you are definitely somebody who should have been employed as an A and R guy, and you know, I got a smile because Kalodner was obviously not noticing what was going on under his own nose in his own company. The very first single we put out on G and R was. It's so fucking easy because Tom and I wanted to get banned by the BBC. In other words, we're not going to be strict. This is about personality and get used to it, fuckers.
2: Exactly. And yeah. you make that statement and that's what you get known for and you stand out for it. Make You got to make yep. a statement, especially in a period of time where everything from MTV to this is when corporate programming at radio and all the Xerox stations started coming in. And they kind of got complacent to just plug everything into this formula of where everybody kind of looks like a bastardized version of, you know, of, of Brett Michaels. And, you know, they hired any one of three or four producers from Bo Hill to Michael Wagner to Bob Rock, and they all had the sound and it was all bombastic. And that hit a lot of the, shallowness and the ability for a lot of these bands to make a statement. You know, they they wrote credible pop songs and they usually they had a great guitar hero and a singer with his own little style of caterwalling. And, you know, that was put it on M T V. If they were cute enough, boom. You know, they everybody would buy it and put it in their collection. And we knew we were never going to do that, so we might as well go big or go home. <laughs> and it just, they wouldn't let us do well, it. Well, so. I'll tell you what,
0: from, from the fan perspective, because, again, I bought the album, I was there, and I, 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 I did see a disconnect between the image and the music. And in, in, in a lot of cases, you'd see these sort of like, you know, the guys that hang out at the pool hall with the tattoos and all, and then you're going, I wish it would rain, and in your arms, which are great songs. But it seems as though the record company tacked you on to the end of the hair metal uh, thing when they could have put you at the forefront of the Soundgarden. You know that you could have been with the Guns and Roses and the sound gardens and the Alex Like you know, you could have been those mean, dirty And they just seem to
2: say, "Well, well and, just and stick them in the on pile electronic- with Poison." ironically honest, when you heard that first sound garden record, you all that personality came through. Whatever picture it paid in your mind psychoacoustically made sense. And you can take a band like Leonard Skinner's Simple Man. You, you can do ballads and if you leave some holes in it and you leave it as bare as what the band looks like, but the soul is there, the hook is there. The honesty is there. It doesn't come across like some like there's a big Sonic light show going on in your mind, trying to make it look like it's coming from an arena. You know, this mentality, of, if you make it sound like it's an arena, they'll sell out arenas. And it's like, no! <laughs> You're bulldozing over everything that the band has in its personality. And that pushes us into a thing that makes us non-distinct. In fact, confusing. Because when you look at us, it, it, I mean we heard this all the time. Uh, classic story when they blew it on Chain of Fools and there was all this big battle going on and they sold the label and all this was happening in a period of like six weeks and it's like well we've got this band that's like right in the middle of a release you know you couldn't just let set a shelf so they're like well what are we coming with the follow-up single? So they tried some like mid-tempo ballad thing and is try to go in, shave off your goatees, let's put you in some prettier clothes, because we're going with a ballad and we want to get you on, you know, top 40 and all this other stuff. And, you know, and, and we're like sitting there going, wait a minute. If they're like, well, if they see a picture of the band, they they won't add it. So they didn't put our picture on the promo single. <laughs> it's like, so this is this sounds like a really confident way to market the band. Let's hide the band. <laughs> it's like and, and you think that in this competitive market, you think in, in the reality how hard it is to break a band in the first place, now you're locked into this bad methodology you started with, a bad marketing strategy when you started with, and now we got to play it out and we think it's actually going to be productive. It's oh. not. And sure enough, they, couldn't, they I, couldn't. I mean, the biggest mistake they made was we we had um, we the, our, the head of the label at the time, who later wound up you know, getting relieved of his duties for some indiscretions, he had, he, he it was, he wanted to knock this out of the park. It, we got moved off of Guess to DGC Records. He wanted to take this and mark, knock it out of the park. We had 120 ads at radio, so for for radio on the first week for debut band, that's monster. Anybody would be jumping up and down, and it was a lot, it was these Z-Rock syndicated stations. We got put into the programming, and The guy who was trying to knock us out of the park decided that in two weeks, he was trying to get us to cross over the top 40. And all of the rock stations were like, got offended. This guy is just trying to steamroll right past us and take us band to become mega platinum without ever working them in the streets. And they're a street band. And it was decisions like that, that one after another, in a period of two to three weeks time, just set a course for the band that was a, a complete nut of business cancer that
1: could not be, well, you know, exercised. Yeah, excised. There, might, there might be another perspective, and I think a lot of people will probably go, oh, he's gone down the rabbit hole. But as I get a little older and look back, certain things seem to take shape and pattern to me. And one thing I'm going to suggest is that I think, as in all media, Record companies preferred entertainers like we have today as opposed to artists. And the reason for that is artists have this nasty habit of speaking truth to power, which takes me back to American dream. I love that. I love that for its powerful, honest statement and talking truth to power. What a great song. Thank you you really, you really, you really did one there on that really is a song that, you know, you talk about things that matter, things that you actually care about and pull out and play five, six, seven years later because they refill your soul and get your blood flowing again. American Dream is one of those. But these companies are far more entertain about entertainers than they are artists. Artists are problematic. Yes, true. Now, uh, let me let me
0: just step in here for one second because I've got about 10 minutes left before i got to run off and drive my daughter. So hopefully we can do a part two because it's been fascinating. But I do want to get to 2009, where you put out an album called Redemption, and I'm pretty sure the title was had a more... It was it was a meaning. There wasn't just, here's a title for an album, because it really was the band's redemption. You went through all this nonsense, and then you came out stronger on the other end, and you've done four albums since American Dream 8, Brutally Honest, and the band seems to be having fun, and the band seems to be the band, right? You're, you're not chasing some corporate image you're not chasing an mtv you're not chasing aor you're not chasing you know bob rock the producer and i think the last four albums including the live one are what the band is right they're they're sort of they're the vital four if you can say that
2: right ron uh i i appreciate that that's your perspective yes i wish i would have had you know nowadays bands at at our level if you don't have any of that backing or people you got to do records on the shoestring so it's hastily recorded hastily mixed and released and you 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 use that as part of a a production value (laughs) because that's just the the realities but i'm glad that you picked up on that i mean redemption for me you know what happened to us after that whole fiasco with geffen and doing the two records is poor little Ron was very crushed that he didn't become the rock star that they promised. So Ron decided he was gonna try to kill himself with a really good heroin habit. So I just fell deeper in I did little projects with Adrian Vandenberg and all these little things, try to keep things going. And I just got up into this cycle of self-destruction, self-pity. So when I pulled myself all of that out of all that bullshit and pulled myself up by the bootstraps and became an adult, we decided that we were going to do this for fun. If it wasn't going to be fun and that it was going to be a journey of the spirit and not one of the wallet. And, you know, so we got back together and tried to put those awarenesses into songs, own my crap, (laughs) you know, uh, shine a little light on myself because I think honesty always comes across um, uh, in a song and in, in music. And so, yeah, that's when we kind of started back on the journey. I and mean, it has been nothing but fun and nothing but reward. Um, we get to go out and do what we love with the guys we love to do it with for the people we love to do it for. And we're lucky enough that we can do it um with credibility, not, because we don't rely on this to make a living, it, re, it allows us to do, pick and choose how we do it, to do it right, to not whore ourselves out, to not beat it to death, to not do something substandard, um, and be really grateful and happy for it and let that come through when we perform. Um, I, I'm, I won't name any names, but I, just, I know a bunch of bands that, See, for me, I I say honestly, um, one of the best things that ever happened to me was we didn't become as popular and successful as they told me I was going to be, because I would have been a complete asshole or dead, one of the two. And so in retrospect, I'm a much better person for it, and I still have what I love to do. So I'm really, really blessed and I'm really grateful. But there's other bands out there that had just enough success and it took them into later years of their lives that they never learned any other life skills. And this is what they're doing. They have no choice. I feel really bad for them now because they're starving. And a lot of them are, most of them are really nice, great people that put their heart and soul into it. But some of them, to be unnamed, they've had, there's maybe one original member. There's even bands with like no original members. (laughs) Somebody's got the name. And they're flogging it like a dead carcass. And their music is weak. They find guys that'll fill in who don't really play the music, weren't part of creating the music. And they're going out milking the fans' desire to relive a time in their life that, that they, they romanticize. And so the name means something and they go out and they do very substandard versions of what these people remember. And fortunately, fans are very forgiving and they're very kind and they appreciate the experience. But in the broader picture, I don't think they're really doing music a a service. Um, I think they're lowering the bar, Um, but they but they got to make a living, man. I mean, this is what they do. And so it's no more tour buses. They do meet and greets. They they hit up the fans wallets and and passion to meet them to to, for revenue. I don't do that. I, I don't I don't. I can't bring myself to do that. Every every show we take off the Rockstar, you know, guard and we go out to the merch booth and we sign every C D and we take every picture and these people have become friends and family. And we don't charge for that experience. And I feel that loyalty and that connection, though smaller, suits us. Obviously there's yeah. other bands that can't do that because you know, if you're playing to six hundred people and you go out to the merch booth, you're gonna get overwhelmed every night. So we try to make it um you know, a spinal top. Yeah, but it's a it's a loyal following. You know?
0: It is a loyal so, following and, and on the upside, at least there's not two little Caesars running around playing the
2: bars. You know, right, there's
0: a lot exactly. of bands that have okay. the, the two versions, right? And you're just like, Oh God, come on.
2: <laughs> I, I know. And and I we've been caught in the middle of that because of our label having one of the LA guns and then we're friends with the other LA guns and it's I uh yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, and then there's the whole cottage industry of the drama that gets built around all of these little cat fights and um, dramas between oh, bands aware. and their public. Yeah, and I know you are. And, <laughs> you know, that becomes a cottage industry in itself, too, is, is, you know, oh, so-and-so said some political statement or so-and-so said, fuck the old guy, the old drummer in the band, and it becomes fodder for eyeballs. And data, data exchange, which is what it's all become now. It's all just about getting eyeballs and data exchange. And
0: yeah, it's all I mean, analytics. It's really, Listen, that that's how I analytics. measure my success: it's, it's analytics. You know?
2: Yeah. No, it's engagement. It's clicks. It's you know, and tweet impressions. Even have, yes, exactly. And to have these words come out of my mouth when I remember—I mean, I'm a fan of music way before I'm a maker of music. And I try to remember that I, every time I get in front of a microphone, I try to emulate the feeling I got from listening to another artist sing a song and relate their music and try to get that internally from my own, you know, temperature gauge. And if I can do that, I figure I'm doing a pretty good job. And what's all, so much of that is now missing. And it's, it's totally affected the music where, it was a social club. it was that's where you hung out together to go buy the tickets and stand in line and then prep for the concert and listen to the music prepping for the concert. And now people can sit and scratch their nuts while watching somebody do that on on Facebook live and not have to go out. And after this whole pandemic, it's going to be even worse because these people aren't young. The fans aren't young. If they're in that age range that this virus, could kill them to go see she's my cherry pie played by a guy who's not even a singer but that's the reality and it's it's going to have its effect commercially and that commercially is going to affect the sonic of of aspect of that for this genre of music as well as for the genres coming up you know and it's a shame. It's I, really a shame.
0: I'm just going to give you the the honesty of my situation as I have to go get my uh, my daughter off to work right now. But uh, great chat, and, and obviously if I didn't have to leave, I think we could do another 20 minutes or so, or, or half hour or so. Uh, Alan, uh, merci beaucoup. Ron, thank you so much, and,
1: and maybe thank we can do this again Alan, soon. Thank
2: you for the kind words. Thank you for the kind words, Alan. But they're not kind,
1: they're just observation of fact. Well, thank you, but well,
2: still, I'm glad that you have those observations and are nice enough to articulate them. So, thank you.
1: Always a pleasure. Give,
2: okay, give my love to everyone, everybody, and Mitch. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. And if you want to do, if you want to do part B, I, my favorite subject is myself. So,
0: <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd be down for it because you know what? It wasn't a traditional interview where it's like, "Hey, tell me about the new album. How did you write the new album? Are you going on tour next week?" And so uh, the, the, the content, it you know, I, I put myself on mute as you were talking, and I just found it fascinating because it really was a great insight to the band, to the music, and also to the larger industry. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I could do this every week, quite frankly. But uh, right now I've got to hop into a car and drive down the road so that my daughter can earn a few bucks or yes, a few please, shekels. Please go do that. Merci tout le monde. À la prochaine. See you next time.
2: Okay, bye, everybody.
0: Ever wonder what Vince Neil would sound like if he was a black belt in Taekwondo? What about what his favorite McDonald's menu item is?
1: Just hold the pickles. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond.